All right, well, hey, Bridge family, and uh, let me go ahead and welcome you both here and in our coffeehouse venue right over there. If you guys got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to John chapter 17. John 17, and uh, hey, I want to celebrate something um, just real quick. I actually want to celebrate somebody that is in the room right now. They have no idea I'm going to do this. Um, But man, you guys know that at our church, we have really embraced a call of God on the heart of our church um, to care for the orphan in particular. And so, uh, man, we've just really stepped forward into this calling of God calls himself in the scriptures. He says, I'm a father to the fatherless and a defender of the orphan and the widow. And uh, man, this week we had somebody in our church that was recognized for just something really unique. And, uh, and so there's a couple that is sitting in right about the third row, right up here, that was recognized as foster parents of the year in this region. Jason, Sarah Marie, can you guys go ahead and stand up? They have no idea that I'm going to do this. So guys, can we show them how honored we are for what they do? Come on, way better than that. Way better than that. That's right. You're welcome. You're welcome. That's so good. That's so good. Jason and Sarah Marie have fostered 27 children, I think, uh, in somewhere around the last year. Am I getting that right? And uh, man, I just, all the time when um, their children, their foster children are here, we want to go out of our way as, can you guys, but when I say this, can you guys affirm it so that they always know this is true? We want their foster children to know they are not secondhand parts of our church. They're our family while they're here. That's right, man. And so we, we praise Christ for that and it's really good. All right. Whew. A little emotional doing that one. All right, well, man, here's where we are today. We are finishing up a series that we're just calling Dangerous Prayers. And what I want to do today is talk to you about the prayer, Unite Us. I want to talk about the prayer, Unite Us. Um, To kind of lead into this, I heard about this story uh, about a guy who was on vacation with his family in Jerusalem. And uh, while he was there, his mother-in-law died. And uh, so he was there, and the coroner was standing there with him and kind of explained that this man had two options. He said, man, Um, One, it costs $5,000 to send your mother-in-law's body back to the United States and you can bury her there. Or we can just bury her here for $150. And the man thought and thought and thought and eventually said, you know, I'd I'd really like to send her back to the United States and bury her there. And the coroner was just blown away. He was like, man, what amazing love you must have had for your mother-in-law. And the man said, well, no, that isn't it. He said, I heard about a case here years ago where a man was buried and three days later rose from the grave and I just can't take that chance. That's what he said. <laughs> and so, uh, man, here's what we know. <laughs> we know is that uh, relationships, they can, they can often be really, really hard. Uh, but here's what we also know from the Bible. We know that relationships can be really, really, really important. Um, in fact, if I was gonna condense everything that the Bible teaches about the nature of relationships in our lives, Um, Here's what the Bible teaches, that your spiritual heart, it has three arteries, not two. And that if you don't have all three of these arteries like up and running, your spiritual heart is not going to function. Uh, It'll shut down just like a human heart. Those three arteries are the truth of God's word, the power of God's spirit, and the soil of God's people. And so you can have the truth of God's word and the power of God's spirit at work in your life. But the Bible teaches that, man, if I'm not like rooted and planted in deep life-giving relationships with the people of God, then my spiritual heart is gonna shut down and stop functioning. And so I could kind of condense this entire series like this. There's a reason I saved this for the last week of this series. Here's why. Because you may have in the last month for the first time in your life prayed, God, search me. You may have prayed for the first time, God, break me. You might be praying for the first time in your whole life, God, would you please send me? But if you are unwilling to pray before God and with other people, unite me. Unite me to your people. Those other three are not going to matter in the long run. 
And so I want to lean into that today, and I want to do it by way of this passage in John 17. So pick up with me in John 17. We're going to start in verse 17. I'm picking up right in the middle of a passage that is called the high priestly prayer. Uh, This is the last prayer that Jesus prayed before he went to the cross. It's the longest recorded prayer in the entire Bible. Here's a little interesting tidbit about this prayer. You know, most of the time when we think about prayer, we are thinking about the fact that Christ is answering our prayers. This is the one prayer that you answer for him. That's really interesting, okay? So pick up with me in verse 17, and uh, you're going to notice a theme here. This is what Jesus prays for us. Watch this. He says, I'm picking up in the middle. He says, Father, I do not ask for these only. When he says these, he's talking about the disciples who are with him at the moment. I'm not just praying for these, but also for those who will believe in me. That's, that's you and me. Jesus like actually prayed for you and me right here, okay? Those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Okay, now, now just notice that, Okay. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe. Now, this is so interesting to me. Just watch this. Why does Jesus want us to be one? Here's why. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's really interesting. What's the logic of that? I'm coming back, coming back to that. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one. There it is again. Even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. There it is again. And loved them even as you loved me. Now, you guys may have noticed this, that three times Jesus repeats himself. He wants us to be one, to be one, to be perfectly one. Now, there's a reason for that, that Jesus prioritized the oneness of his future disciples as the thing that he prays for before he goes to the cross, because it is arguably the most important thing that you'll ever do in your life. Now, what I want to do in the next few minutes, this sermon is going to be shorter than usual. You'll see why. Okay. Don't cheer out loud. Don't, but this is what's going to happen. Uh, There's a reason I want you to finish this message thinking I am crazy if I don't press into relationships with the people of God. So here we go. Okay. Three motivations. Number one, number one motivation for us stepping into these relationships is one, you were created for this. You were literally created to be in relationship. Now, for you, uh, you Bible scholars in the room, I, I need you to track with me and help me out real quick, okay? Uh, did you notice that what Jesus prays, he says, I want them to be one, even as we are one. And then he says to God, I am in you. You are in me. We are one. Now, what's going on there? Here's, here's what's going on. Jesus is praying into a doctrine that theologians for centuries have called the Trinity, okay? The Trinity. Now, no, uh, the Trinity is, is something that Bible scholars call one of the incommunicable attributes of God. That means there is no human language that can adequately describe the nature of the Trinity. Let me do my best really quick, okay? What the Trinity means is that we as Christians, we do not worship three gods. We do not worship one God in three forms, We worship one God in three persons. In fact, let me me say it to you like this. The Bible teaches that God is one what, but three whose. That's what it means for God to be a trinity. So now watch this. That means that from all eternity, God has existed in relationship. Do you guys understand this? God himself is a relationship. That's what the Bible teaches. And the Bible teaches you were created in his image. So you were created to exist in oneness 
with other people and you literally cannot exist without it. You literally can't, okay? Now I could do a lot here. This is one spot where actually biology backs up theology uh, in a really clear way. I'll give you one example of this. Um, A couple years ago, I came across an article in the Huffington Post. The title of the article was, The Likely Cause of Addiction Has Been Discovered and It's Not What You Think. Fascinating article, okay? The article was about, it pointed this out, that for years, scientists have always assumed that the cause of addiction was chemical dependency, you know, it's like you, t- you ingest a chemical over and over and over, your body develops a, you know, a dependency, uh, you begin to physically crave that chemical, and that that craving is where the addiction comes from, okay? So that's been the working theory for decades. But what scientists have begun to figure out is they've noted that there are all these different areas where uh, people's addictions, they always form in isolation, And people's addictions tend to disappear in the presence of thriving relationships. So a couple examples. Um, If you, let's say you break your hip and you go uh, into the hospital, they're going to put you on an extremely uh, powerful painkiller called diamorphine. Do you guys know what diamorphine is? Here's what it is. That's just the medical term for cocaine. That's all that is. And so for months, sometimes months, you will be rhythmically ingesting a purer, harder form of cocaine than you are going to be able to buy out on the streets for months. So now what you would think if addiction was created by chemical dependency, you would think that people would walk out of the hospital and just become addicts to diamorphine all the time. Almost never happens. People walk out of the hospital, they re, sort of reinsert themselves into their existing relationships uh, and the dependency goes away. Okay, now that's one. I'll give you another one. This is where they actually discovered this in the first place. Uh, they started noticing back in the Vietnam War that uh, in, during the Vietnam War, cocaine addiction was sky high on the field. Uh, some people estimate that up to 20% of active Vietnam uh, soldiers were addicted to cocaine. So what everyone thought was going to happen is they would come back, you know, home, they would, you know, reinsert themselves into society here, and they would come back and they would be addicts. That almost never happened. In fact, 95% of Vietnam soldiers that were addicted to cocaine on the field came back reintegrated uh, re, uh, into their existing relationships, and 95% of them saw that addiction go away almost immediately. Now, here's what's fascinating about this. The conclusion of the article said this. It said, what we have discovered is that the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's human connection. Now, this is fascinating. I want you to think about this. You were so made for a relationship that without it, your soul will literally begin to eat itself in addiction. That's how hardwired you are to exist as one person in oneness and community with people around you. Listen, what I'm getting ready to say may not sound pastoral at all. I believe it is deeply biblical. If you are in a season right now where it's like, man, I'm just not seeing the power and the grace of Christ that he purchased for me at work in my life. I can't get out of this addiction. My marriage won't seem to heal itself. Listen to me. What you might most need might not be another Bible study, a new prayer journal, integrating a new spiritual discipline. What you might need more than anything else is a relationship with other Christians so deep that you don't just share a room with them once a week, you share your soul with them. You see that? That's what we're seeing in this path. You were created for this to live as one with other Christians, just as Christ is one with the Father. So number one, 
You were created for this, hardwired for it. You can't exist without it, okay? Now, number two, did you notice, oh, let me say it and let me explain it. Number two, the second motivation, Jesus said that the oneness of his future disciples would be the thing that authenticated his reality as the son of God to the watching world. That is fascinating to me, okay? So I want you to think about this. Do you notice it in verse 21? Jesus actually prays it twice. But if you look down in verse 21, Jesus says, the reason that I want them to be one, he says, so that the world might believe that you have sent me. Now that blows my mind. Uh, If you were to ask me, Josh, how is the world gonna believe that God sent Jesus Christ? Uh, What I think most of us would say is, man, what proves to the world the reality of Christ is um, miracles. When God powerfully performs miracles, signs and wonders to authenticate the reality of the gospel. That's what does it. Some of us might think, man, uh, very powerful, uh, persuasive intellectual arguments. The uh, Aquinas' five proofs or whatever apologetic issues you've had. Some powerful argument will convince the world. Jesus says none of that. Jesus says, the thing that will authenticate my divinity to the world is the future oneness of the church. Now, why? Why does Jesus say that's a thing? Well, can I just point this out to you? If you look out in the world right now, the world hates each other. (laughs) Everywhere you go, the world is constantly telling people and discipling people to take on identities that will always lead to division, hatred, and strife. So if you look outside the walls of the church, okay, now just track with me. Some of you get, you're going to throw a red flag on me. Just track with me. If you look outside of the walls of the church, this is how it always works. It's Republican versus Democrat. This ethnicity versus that ethnicity. The wealthy versus the poor. This nation against that nation. But the Bible says that Christ can give us an identity that can unite us in a way that the world will only divide us. That's what he can do. I'll give you an example of this. Um, one of my favorite stories in church history is the story of, uh, of a man named Steve Saint and a South American tribesman, tribesman whose name was Minkai. Some of you may have uh, heard this story before, uh, the story of a man named Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was a college student in the 1950s that with four of his friends, they found out about an unreached people group in Ecuador called the Aka Indians, and they developed a burden of calling to do whatever it took to take the gospel to the unreached people group, uh, the tribe of the Akas. And so in 1956, after years of trying to reach one of the most unreached tribes in, in, uh, in South America, Jim Elliott and his four friends, listen to these names, Nate Saint, Ed McCauley, Pete Fleming, and Roger Udarian, they landed their plane on a beach near the Akas to establish contact. Now, uh, according to their journals that were recovered later, the first meeting actually went pretty well. But at the second meeting on January 8th, 1956, a group of Aka warriors stabbed all five men to death with their spears until they were dead and left their bodies floating in a river to be discovered later. A uh, side note, this is fascinating to me. Um, when their bodies were discovered, all five men were carrying firearms, but not a single bullet had been fired. Do you know why? It was discovered later in one of their journals that those men had committed to each other that they would never, no matter what happened, fire upon the oncoming tribe because they counted their lives as less valuable than the possible advance of the gospel to the Aucas. And so they willingly gave their lives. Now, uh, the story did not end there. All five of those men died, uh, but the Holy Spirit began to do a powerful work in the families of the men who were killed. So that later, uh, all five of their families 
their wives and their children ended up moving down and living among the Akas in South America, ministering to them, building hospitals, uh, building schools, and teaching them the gospel. Eventually, Steve Saint, the, the son of Nate Saint, one of the men who had been speared to death, uh, led one of the men of the tribe to Christ, who is a man named Minkai. It was later discovered that Minkai was the man who had speared his father, Nate Saint, to death on the beach that day. Uh, as if that weren't powerful enough, Minkai, after becoming a Christian, eventually adopted Steve Saint as his tribal son in his family. And Steve Saint's children now know Minkai as the grandfather who stands in place for the one that he killed. Now watch this. How? How is that possible? Here's how. Because what defines their relationship is not the blood that ran down the spear of Menkai. What defines their relationship is the blood that ran down the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, when Steve Saint looks at Menkai, his primary thought is not, you shed the blood of my dad. His primary thought is, the blood of Christ was shed for us. These two men from different ethnicities, from different nations, and from different families, they share a bloodline in the blood of Christ that makes them one. And Jesus is saying, come on, this, she's getting it, the rest of you are not. That's it, man. You guys got to catch up. You guys got to catch up. What you're seeing here, guys, is that there are a lot of differences among the people of God. Jews do not recognize Jesus as Messiah. Protestants do not recognize the Pope as, as an authority. Baptists do not recognize each other in the liquor store. I got to get that in. I got to get that in at least once a year, at least once a year. But watch this. What this passage says is that everyone who has, quote, believed in the Son and believed in his atoning death on our behalf has been given an identity that unites us deeper than the identities that divide us. And Jesus is saying, when will the world stand at attention and believe this message that I've been sent and commissioned for? When they see the visible oneness of the church that I died to purchase. That's when. Now watch this. If you're wondering, like, how does this work, okay? Well, think about this. Right now, guys, the world is asking this. Everywhere you look, even in our nation right now, hop on Twitter, you'll see this. The world is asking the question, how can we unite these different groups and identities that are divided. The world is asking, how can people who are Republican and people who are Democrat be united as one? Well, here's how. Because for Christians, what defines our relationship is not a red elephant or a blue donkey, it's a slain lamb. People are asking, how can ethnicities that have historically been divided be one? Well, here's how. Because what most deeply defines me isn't that your skin is brown and my skin is peach, but that we are both clothed with the white robes of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You see, people are saying, if you look around a room full of people from different nations, you can look at those people and say, man, your citizenship may be in Brazil or Russia or Mexico or Sri Lanka, but as Christians, we look at each other and say, our citizenship is in heaven and we share a citizenship together. And listen, I just want to preach to our church for a second and cast a vision for the future. Bridge family, if we would see Nashville, if we would see Tennessee, if we would see our nation swept up into a gospel movement an otherworldly movement of God, this church must be marked by relationships of otherworldly oneness. There is no other way. Jesus prayed into this. There's a reason he did it. So number two, motivation. The thing that will cause the people in your life who do not know God to stand at attention is when they see a oneness that they cannot explain demonstrated among the united people of God under Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, if that's not enough, let me get down to you. Okay. Motivation number three, did you notice that what Jesus prays in this passage, 
he prays, I pray, listen, here's the pronoun. I pray that they may be one. And there's a very specific they. The they is everyone who will believe in me. So did you know this? There is a very specific group of people that God is calling, he is offering you as a son or a daughter of the living God to have a oneness with that he does not want you to have with any other group of people in this world. That is his children. Think about this. When I adopted my two daughters into my family, Eliana and Felicity, uh, let me do Felicity, second, second child we adopted. She, when we adopted her, she didn't just gain a father, she gained a sister. It's the exact same way when you are adopted into the family of God. You did not just gain a father. You gained brothers and sisters from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. And you need them in the same way that you have been given a heavenly father. You, you need them, okay? Now, let me show you how this works, all right? The Bible teaches that you are like a seed, and the people that you surround yourself with in your life are like soil. How a seed grows is largely determined by the soil that is planted in. That's always true. Um, the book of Proverbs says it like this, Proverbs 13, 20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. Do you know what that means? It, what it means is that the growth of the seed is determined by the health of the soil. If you can put, you can put a good seed in bad soil, it won't grow. You can put a bad seed in good soil, it'll find a way to grow. Okay. Now, if you're not tracking with me, uh, let, let me give you a visual example of this. Um, a couple of years ago, Jan and I moved. We used to live uh, in Columbia uh, in a house, that uh, tiny little house we built uh, that uh, we lived in for five years. Um, when we first moved in, it was, uh, we had no grass, not a blade of grass anywhere, because we lived on a plot of land that had been raised. I mean, it was, there was nothing, not even a weed. And so about a year later, we scrimped and saved and did all that, and we eventually uh, saved up enough money to seed our lawn with grass. And so we seeded it with fescue, you know, front and back, did all that stuff. Um, but when it began to grow, what we noticed is it grew perfectly in every spot in the entire yard except one. And there was a spot in our front yard right next to the garage about the size of my head that as long as we lived there for five years, no matter what we did, no matter how often I reseeded, not a single blade of grass would grow in that spot. Uh, in fact, so that for five years that was true when we lived there. In fact, this week, uh, I actually drove over to our old house and snuck in somebody else's yard that owns the house now. I found that little spot. This is that same spot eight years after we planted that grass, okay? This, that's eight years later. And by the way, if you live in Columbia and there was some creepy little white dude in your front yard taking pictures, that was me and here's why, okay? But eight years later, that spot, everywhere around it, things are growing. But eight years later, that one spot, a single blade of grass still cannot grow. So I thought, and I thought, and I thought, and I thought, until eventually it dawned on me. When we first moved into that house, I was carrying in a heavy box of cleaning chemicals that we carried over from our old uh, condo. And I got real lazy and didn't feel like carrying in all of the cleaning chemicals. All the bottles were almost empty. And so I set it down and I took all of those chemicals and I poured all of them out in the same spot an entire box is worth. And that spot is the spot where eight years ago I poured out all of those chemicals. Now watch this. When I seeded that yard, 
the entire yard, it all got the same seed. The problem in that spot, there was not a seed problem. There was a soil problem. And you see that? Even good seed cannot grow in bad soil. Some of you are in this spot in your life where you're eight years after you become a Christian or 18 years or 28 years. And right now you're looking at your life and you're like, man, I don't understand why joy and vibrancy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, power, all the things that I know should be happening. In my, I don't understand why they're not growing. Well, the problem may, you, don't, you probably don't have a seed problem. You probably got a soil problem. You are surrounding yourself with people who are not pushing you into and fanning your, flame into, fanning your faith into flame. They're doing the exact opposite. And you need to make a change that will change your life. Okay, let me give one example. Let me give one little example. You guys may have never noticed this. In Deuteronomy, uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 20, there was a time where God was giving instructions about what an army general should do before any of the armies of Israel would go into battle. And one of the prescriptions he gave was stand up and tell every soldier, if anyone is scared, if anyone is faint-hearted, let him go home right now. Now, when I read that, I was like, that's very confusing. Don't you want as many soldiers as possible with you if you want to win a battle? Well, apparently not. Do you know why God did that? Because it's very hard for faith to grow in the soil of fear. And he knew that if those men were going to maintain a posture of faith, God was going to have to remove the soil of relationships that had fear. Some of you are in a season right now where you need to, right now, the Spirit is convicting you while I'm preaching, that you need to distance yourself from very close relationships with people who are not fanning your faith into flame. You've got contaminated soil in your life and you need to do something about that. Now, you don't have to announce it. You need to go to all your friends and say, hey bro, you're contaminating my soil. That's not what you need to do. But you do need to gradually begin to shift where you spend most of your time and root yourself in relationships that fan your faith into flame. I'll give you one last example. You know, when I look at my life and when I say this, when I say the first half of this, I'm a little embarrassed. Some of you are going to think that I'm bragging on myself, and it's the exact opposite. You'll see when I get to the end. I've been a Christian since I was, I think, 13, either 13 or 16. I'm not quite sure when. In all those years, when I look back, for some reason, I have never had a season of my life. Now, I've fallen into very serious sin. I've done some really horrible things. Uh, but I've never had a season of my life where I just sustained, ran away from God in all those years. And some people, you might be tempted to look at that and say, man, Josh, that's because you're a really great person. No, it's not. It's because I've always been surrounded by really great people. My soil has always been good. Now watch this. Watch this. Good things can't grow in bad soil. Bad things can't grow in good soil. And some of you need to make a decision for the first time in your life to plant yourself, root yourself deeply in relationships with people who will fan your faith into flame. Amazing things can happen if you'll do that. I want you to see what that looks like. So check this out with me. So five years ago, we had just had our first of three kids. And then her mom was diagnosed with uh, stage four cancer. And through all that, we were really, even though we had friends, we were living in a, just a spiritual isolation. And in that isolation, sins that had been just hidden in my heart festered and turned into addictions. And those addictions turned pretty much into self-destruction. We were at a place where our marriage was just crumbling. When everything started happening and um, things just started kind of falling apart, mostly I stayed in just 
crisis survival mode. The season of life we were in when we first came to the bridge, we were seeing a marriage counselor. And around the same time we started seeing the marriage counselor, we joined our community group. The first night of community group was just kind of hanging out, playing games. We didn't know anybody. The person that invited us didn't actually come to that first community group. So we showed up and these people just made us feel welcome. I'm naturally, I'm introverted. For me, going to something where I literally know nobody um, is extremely frightening. So yeah, after that icebreaker night, you know, we were still going through a crisis and we're like, can we trust these people? And I remember the group host invited me over to like watch a football game, which I hate football, but I went anyway because I needed community and met some people that were in the group there that night too and really grew to be like, I can actually trust these people with, with my problems a little bit. But then the, the second time we came back, um, I remember we split up guys and girls and uh, I, I went below the line of shame and I, I confessed the, the, the deep shameful things that I was going through. Instead of these people saying, we reject you, what, how, how dare you even bring stuff like, who are you? I felt loved and I felt accepted and it just brought, just immediately there was freedom. Several of those guys I still text on a weekly basis below the line of shame of what, of what we're going through and we're praying for each other. But after about six months, the marriage counselor said, I'm going to have to terminate you guys' clients because I can't help you. He told me, Andy, it's because of your addiction. And I could have left that session feeling like that's who I am. I'm my addiction. I am what I'm going through. I am my sin. That's my identity. And because of the group and how they were consistently pouring into us every week, I mean, we got that consistent reminder every week, like, you are a child of God, you are loved, you are uh, not your sin, you are not the brokenness, you are not the crisis that you're going through, going through, and so because of that, we felt hope, we felt, okay, I think we're going to make it, we're going to be okay, and I, I, I feel like I'm just trying to get through each day, and um, I knew that I could, like, reach out to them, those are the people, those are the people that I can reach out to at midnight, those are the people that uh, I could go and knock on the door and be like, I really need to talk to somebody. I feel like those ladies just kind of like took me and lifted me up back to where um, they started showing me like, this is who you are. Like you are, you are not um, what you're going through. You are a child of God. Amen. 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 Yeah. Man, some of you guys, you're here and you're at that spot right now where it's like, man, the addiction won't go away. Uh, the marriage won't seem to heal itself. Um, you can't seem to get yourself uh, on the path of chasing after God with your whole heart. And what I want you to hear from me is that what you may most need is not a new Bible study, not a new prayer journal, not a new spiritual discipline. You need the soil of relationships with people who trust Christ next to you. And so here's what I want to do. Um, today, this, uh, this worship gathering is over right now. Um, on your way in, you got handed one of these guys. If you go ahead and grab this, our community group connect handout. If you go ahead and grab this right now. What's happening today is today in one day, we are launching over 100 new bridge community groups. And uh, so, man, if you'll grab this guy, what you'll see is that we're listing uh, every single group that we're launching today here at the Spring Hill campus is, in, is right here, listed right here. Uh, you can go through and you'll see all the different kinds of groups. Um, we have men's groups, women's groups, opens group, open groups for families. If you need help with your finances, if you need help with your marriage, if you need help with parents, all of those are listed here. All, where they meet 
are listed. We guys, listen. We got groups that meet every day of the week that start at six a.m. You know, some of some of them start in the evening at seven p.m. We got groups that meet as far north as Brentwood, as far south as Santa Fe. I mean, we got we may have a group up in Nashville, everywhere. And what I'm asking you to do is just look through this. And here's what I'm asking. I am asking you to test drive a community group for the next six weeks. Just test drive it. Listen, you've, if you get in and six weeks later you think, I hate these people and they're really weird, you have my permission to leave. You can, the pastor's permission to leave. But I'm asking you to test drive a community group just for the next six weeks. And in 10 years of being the pastor of the bridge, what I've seen is I've never met a person who regretted it. And so if you could do that right now, check this out and figure out what group are we going to test drive just for the next six weeks and take that step today.